Well, this morning we're going to continue our sermon series as we talk about grace going forward. We began that sermon series last weekend as we embraced our first commitment, a commitment that was first made in Acts chapter 2. A commitment to understanding how it is not our own power that takes us forward, but it is God's grace that leads us forward. So we're not just talking about how does, how does grace, meaning our church body, move forward, but how does God's grace move us forward? We talk about how this whole series is going to be built off of this one passage, this one section off in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And so we would read that and look at that each week. So I'd love if you would read this again with me this morning as we consider what God is doing here at Grace. It reads, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So last week, we looked at that last section. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And we talked about how how in the early church, that was one of their focuses, was seeing how God would continue to grow their church. And so that first commitment we talked about last week was intentionally inviting others whether it is a coworker or a family member or a neighbor or somebody else that God has put in our life. So maybe it's a, another parent on the a team that our child plays on that athletic team with. But that we're going to intentionally invite others to be a part of what God is doing in this place. And then as we invite them, watch how the Lord adds to our number daily those who are being saved. And as a reminder to how that is our calling, if you saw the window clings, those window clings which are are still on our church doors that say, welcome in Christ's name, are a reflection of the window clings that were on the very first church that Grace ever worshipped in. So if you go and look at the very last panel, or it would be the very first panel, all the way at the very end of the hallway, you'll see the first church that Grace ever worshipped in a storefront church in downtown Menominee Falls. And the window clings we have now are the window clings that reflect back then when we were that mission outpost, a mission outpost focused on equipping missionaries for the sake of the building of the kingdom of God. And we looked at that passage from Luke 15, talking about the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one wandered off and sought out the one and brought the one back. And then there's final verse where he talks about what that means. And Jesus says, just so I tell you that there will be more rejoicing, or I said in my translation, it's more partying in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so if you want to party with heaven, partying with heaven doesn't just mean celebrating what's going on in the church, but partying with heaven means that we celebrate lives that are changed by reaching out to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ and inviting them into being a part of what the body of Christ is all about. And so we handed out those party hats, which I had a few people still ask me, what are those party hats all about? I wasn't here this last weekend. And so so I said, those party hats, I'll explain it again. But if you didn't grab one, grab one of those party hats on your way out and then put it somewhere 
where you can see it all the time to a reminder to you to be intentionally inviting others to be a part of what God is doing for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it was kind of fun this past week. I didn't know that people would do this, but they did. They started sending me pictures of where they put their party hats. And so some hung them from their rearview mirror in their car. So they would see a couple of people put it in front of their TV. One person put it on their dresser. And, and so if you want to take one home and then send me a picture of where you put that hat, I would love to see where you put it. But I just want to encourage you, put it somewhere where you will always be reminded to intentionally invite others. Today we're going to look at our second commitment, but as we look at our second commitment and another passage from Luke, Luke 14, uh, let's begin our time with a word of prayer, we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for intentionally inviting us to be a part of the body of Christ. Not just the one here at Grace, but be a part of the body of Christ within the kingdom of God. So that by being a part of the body, we might know the hope and salvation we have. Lord, help us to take up that commitment to intentionally invite. And now, Lord, today, to look at this next commitment that your church has always taken up, a commitment that we will find easily in the book of Acts and also in your call for us as disciples. So open our hearts, our eyes, and our ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I were to ask you to take out your worship bulletins, Turn to the very back side where it says uh, uh, worship notes or how to write worship notes or space to write worship notes and ask you, instead of writing worship notes there, to draw the kind of shape that you are in, what kind of a picture would you draw? I'm not asking you to actually do that. But what would it be? Would you draw more of a stick? Would it be um, an oval? Some of you go, well, mine is much more more like a pear, right? Like so, so what kind of a shape would you draw if I was to ask you to draw the kind of shape that you are in? We all have a shape to our bodies, right? And that shape changes over time, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. The shape of your body has changed over time. In fact, I believe there is nothing more humbling then after turning 40, going in to get a physical, right? Because the doctor looks at you and goes, you put on a little bit of weight this past year, and you probably should take in less uh, carbohydrates because your cholesterol isn't so good. And, right, and then they start heaping all these things, and, and you need to get some blood work done, and right? Like, like there's nothing more humiliating than that, or, or this. My son is six years old, and at six years old, a very active six-year-old, like, my son actually has a six-pack, right? So like, he'll take his shirt off, and you can see his abs. I'm like, you're a six-year-old. No six-year-old should be able to, right? So, so you can see them, though. And then, dad, then he'll look at me, dad, and he'll go, dad, why don't you have one? Yeah, you're grounded, right? I don't have one because I have kids, and I'm running you all over the place every single evening. I don't have time to do anything else. But our shape changes. It changes when we have children. It changes when we raise children. It changes when our work life gets way too busy. It changes when we're under stress. It changes as we get older. Our body, our shape changes. What kind of shape are you in? But not just physically. What kind of shape are you in spiritually? If you were to consider the shape of your spiritual life, how would you describe it? How would you describe your passion, your growth, 
your maturity, the strength of your faith? How would you describe your spiritual life, your, your disciple shape based on your worship life, your prayer life, your generosity, your service, your worship, your attitude, your actions? What does it look like? What kind of shape are you in as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And how do you even gauge that, right? Like sometimes that's hard to gauge because we can gauge our, our body and how, what kind of shape we're in with our body because we can step on a scale or we can get a body fat test or we can check out our BMI or, or we can, can look at our cholesterol levels or we can have somebody do CAT scans and things like that to check out our body. But how would you do that for your spiritual life? Well, I believe there's a way we can understand that, and Jesus gives a glimpse into that in Luke chapter 14. So if you'd open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 this morning, you can find those in the pews in front of you. If you brought your Bible from home, that's wonderful. We always encourage you to do that, but Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. As we take a look at this section in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, understand that, that this calling that Jesus gives us to a discipleship is a very hard, difficult calling. In fact, if for you, if you're like, well, well, discipleship's not that hard, then you might be on the wrong road of discipleship. Because when Jesus talks about discipleship, we're going to see this in our text, the road of discipleship is a difficult Road And the statements that Jesus makes here are very challenging, in-your-face statements. In fact, what, what we see and what we're going to read here, this statement kills a comfortable, consumeristic American Christianity. Like, you cannot have a consumeristic, comfortable American Christianity and still follow Jesus when you read this text. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. It says... Now a great crowd accompanied Jesus, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is a pretty shocking statement of Jesus, is it not? Like normally if you would have a great crowd, what would you do for a great crowd? I mean, if you've ever gone to a concert and seen a musician or an artist standing in front of a a huge stadium filled with people, what do they do? Like they welcome them, they greet them, they're like, yeah, it's so great that you're here, we're excited that you're a part of this, thanks for coming and showing up, man, we just love that you're here, right? Like that's that's normally how you greet a crowd, like you clap for them, you encourage them, you welcome them. What does Jesus do? He turns to the crowd and he goes, are you in the right place? Are you sure you're supposed to be here? I mean, could you imagine standing up and and whoever it is, your favorite artist or singer on stage, show up and go, hey, uh, I know some of you are here for the right reasons, some of you are not here for the right reasons, and if you're not here for the right reasons, you really shouldn't be here. It's not very welcoming, is it? This is the statement Jesus makes. This is a statement where Jesus makes to because he understands that the road of following Jesus is a very difficult road. In fact, it's really interesting the difference between this text and the text we read, read last week in the way that Jesus deals with those that are inside the church and those that are outside of the church, meaning those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Because the way that we often operate in the church today is that we want to make things as easy and as comfortable as possible for those that are inside the church, don't we? 
Right? Like, I want things done the way I want them done in the time frame I want them done in and make the decisions that I want to be made. And I want things to be comfortable for me as a member of the church. And then those who are outside the church, when they come to be a member of our church, then they can conform to the way that we do things here. But that's not how Jesus acts, is it? Like, Jesus doesn't welcome the insiders and challenge the outsiders. Jesus goes and he seeks and he welcomes and he takes care of and he carries and he blesses the outsiders and challenges those that are inside. Right? Like, like with the lost sheep. He goes to the lost sheep, he finds the lost sheep, picks the lost sheep up, puts the lost sheep on his shoulders and carries the lost sheep back to the flock and then parties because he found the lost sheep. And then for those that are inside the church, he turns around and he goes, hey, if you don't hate everything in your life, you can't be my disciple. He welcomes the outsiders who are far from him and then once they become insiders, he challenges them to a greater growth in their walk as a disciple to follow, to live, to look, to act, to respond, to repeat the life of the one that they follow. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. When he says, you can't be my disciple, he says, to be a disciple means that you look like, act like, speak like, live like, and experience what the person that you are following looks like, thinks like, acts like, speaks like, and lives like. And if Jesus goes to the cross for us, then his followers should go to the cross as well. He understands that this is not an easy life. And so he says, if you do not hate your your father and your mother, your brothers and your sisters, even your own life, then you cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is not saying is he's not saying dishonor the fourth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. Because some people will read this and go, how can Jesus make this radical statement, but then still uphold the law on your father and mother? What he's saying here is he's making a comparison. It was a way that they would talk at that time in that culture to make a comparison, saying that in comparison to your amazing love and allegiance and loyalty and honor for God, compared to that, your love for your parents, your brother, your sister should look like hatred. He's saying that's how much you should love God above everything else. Because if you don't love God to that degree... You cannot be my disciple. He goes on then and continues and he says, Therefore, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my own disciple. He's saying this life is not going to be easy. To bear your cross means to suffer, to sacrifice. The road is hard and the journey is painful and it is difficult to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. But he's going to end up saying it's worth it, but it's difficult. But Jesus reminds us in that statement, pointing to the cross, he reminds us of the one who carried the cross already for us. He reminds us of the one who made the greatest sacrifice and carried the greatest burden and and endured the most pain and suffering of all, and that is Jesus Christ, who gave everything up for your sake and for mine. And there is no cross that is greater than the cross that he carried. And our crosses are small in comparison to that. But he says, if you don't carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. He then tells two parables. He starts by talking about the parable of the one who who lays a foundation. And he says this, he goes, goes, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build, but he was not able to finish. And then tells a second parable. He goes, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate or count the cost of whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000. And if he is not able to, will will he not send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace? He says, he says, if you look at your plans and if you look at the people in your life, he says, he says, will you not deliberate first and count the cost of what it's going to take to accomplish the thing that you are trying to do? And so if you're trying to be a disciple, if you're saying, I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, he is saying, you need to first count the cost. You need to consider the pros and the cons. You need to consider your calendar, your priorities, your family. You need to to consider first your financial obligations and your goals in your own life. Because what he's saying here is that, that to follow Jesus, to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, means that you might actually lose friends along the way. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ might mean that you have to give up sports on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning and lose your starting position on that team to be a true committed follower of Jesus Christ. It means that you might not be as popular with your group of friends or with your coworkers because you don't say the things they say and you don't act in the way they act and you don't make, make decisions in your business or in your company in the way that they might do it to get ahead even if those decisions are wrong decisions. And so there is a cost to following Jesus to be a true committed disciple of Jesus Christ. There's a book actually called The Cost of Discipleship written by a a gentleman named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in this book, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the cost of following Jesus and how easy is it for us to compromise that cost for the sake of living a comfortable American Christianity. He says this, He says, the antithesis between the Christian life and the life of Burgess, meaning a materialistic, middle-class, valued life, is at an end. So the Christian life then comes to mean nothing more than living in the world and as the world, in being no different from the world. In fact, in being prohibited from being different from the world for the sake of grace. The upshot of it all is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for one hour or so on a Sunday morning and go to church to be assured that my sins are all forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Christ. For cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. And that is all too often the type of discipleship that we find in churches today. One that is easy, that's simple. It is the, the road of least resistance. It's saying, saying, I want Jesus and the things of this world. I want Jesus and my livelihood. I want Jesus and my own value system. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you truly want to be a disciple, consider the cost. Because there's no comparisons and no compromises in the kingdom of God. And so he finishes this really difficult section. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says everything. You have to give it all up. And by giving it up, he doesn't mean you have to give it away. But that word renounce is a word that deals with ownership. It means anyone who will not give up ownership of everything that they have 
They don't give up ownership of their life. Don't give up ownership of their company. Don't give up ownership of their house, their car, their home, their children, their family, their life. Doesn't give that ownership back up to God so that God might do with it as He sees best. If you can't give up ownership of everything, then you can't be my disciple. This is a real radical Radical statement by Jesus talking about what it means to truly follow Him. And it causes us to ask the question in our own life, what is it in my life that I can't give up if Jesus asked me to? Is it a job? Is it an athletic endeavor? A possession? Time? Vacation? Family? Because God gives a, calls us to give it all up for His sake. God... God will not allow anything to rival him. There's a great story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 5. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we find that the Ark of the Covenant, this prized possession of the people of God, has been taken over. And it's been taken by the Philistines. And the Philistines take it to one of their cities and they put it in their temple and it says this. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was their god. It was an idol. And so here they put the ark of the covenant right next to the statue to Dagon. And they're both there in, the, in this temple, this, this pagan temple. It says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose up the early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had again fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. I just love this picture, right? There is this, so, so they have this idol and they have the ark of God and the ark of God, it, it, it is representative of the presence of God and this idol, uh, they, they leave it here overnight and the idol falls face down as if it's bowing down to the ark. And so they take the idol and they set the idol back up and they go back to bed that night and the next morning again, the idol falls down but this time the idol, its head falls off and its arms fall off and its trunk is just left as it's bowing down broken before the presence of God. And I believe what Jesus is saying in this text when he talks about the cost of discipleship is whatever it is that is your idol, whatever it is that is your Dagon, whether it is your job or your livelihood or your home or your, your, your family or whatever it is, you need to lay it down before the ark of God to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to give it all up. Jesus gives us an exclusionary statement not just to outsiders when he says to them, I am the only way, the truth, and the life, but to insiders when he says to them, you need to renounce everything. You cannot be a lukewarm Christian and be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because in Revelation 3, what does he say happens to lukewarm Christians? They get spit out of his mouth. This is a very strong statement that Jesus makes. And then he goes on and he finishes that section. He goes, so what do you do with salt that's lost its saltiness? He says, that salt is not good for the soil, nor is it even good for a pile of manure. So you just throw it out. He's saying, what do you do with a Christian who won't renounce and give up everything, but will cling only to their idols? He says, they can't follow Jesus and follow other things. He's reminding us that in our life as a Christian, you and I, we need to count the cost. We need to see the cross we need to give it all up and we need to follow 
Jesus. Because what Jesus is saying here is he turns and he looks at this this great crowd. He says, I would rather have a few all-in Christians than a whole mass crowd of lukewarm disciples. The people that I want in my church, in my family, in in the body of Christ are not lukewarm Christians, but are Christians who are all in for the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the word that is found in Acts chapter 2, 42. I said, I said the whole series would be based off of that. It's the word devoted. In verse 42, it says, and they, they gathered together, right? They, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They devoted themselves. Do you know what that word devoted means? It means they persisted in and they obsessed over. It was the central thing in their life. That to them, Jesus was so beautiful and so amazing and so perfect. He was so everything to them that they couldn't help but go all in for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that's what God calls us to do, to go all in. In fact, the second commitment that we see both in Acts chapter 2 and in this text is that we are to intentionally engage, to intentionally be all in, to obsess over the things that God gives to us. And we all engage in something. Or we are obsessed over uh, something. In fact, I see that in my own house. My children are obsessed sometimes over Netflix shows, and so they binge watch Netflix. Some of you are obsessed over, you are engaged, and you are all in for your job, or your athletic career, or your car, or your friendships, or your family. But Jesus says the most important thing that you can be engaged in, not just intending, but being all in for, is for the kingdom of God. So how is your disciple shape? If you went to a doctor and had them do a physical of your spiritual life, what would they find? And what are you doing about it? Because if you wanted to change the shape of your body, you would actually have to do something about it different. Otherwise, it's either going to stay the same or just get worse, right? But if you want it to get better, you might start a diet or you might start going to, to the WAC or Planet Fitness or, or go to a, a boot camp type experience or, or something like that. You would intentionally engage in those things that would change the shape of your body. So what are you doing to intentionally shape, change the shape of your spiritual life? And we believe here at Grace that there are at least six qualities. In fact, I would encourage you to write these six things down and then look through Acts 2, 42 to 47. You will find all six of these in Acts 2, 42 to 47. But to intentionally engage in worship, not when it's convenient, not when you have a Sunday free, not, not when, when you, you feel like waking up, but every week to engage in worshiping God. Prayer. To intentionally engage in prayer. To pray constantly, consistently, not just once a week, not even just once a day, but to have a life filled with prayer, that every breath you breathe is a breath of prayer. In fact, in a little bit, we're going to do a three-week sermon series on prayer called Conversations with God. I'm talking about how God is calling us to have conversations with Him all the time. To study the Word of God, and there are so many opportunities to study God's Word. Just pick one. Whether it's a Wednesday evening to do a a women's Bible study that's entitled Altogether Beautiful, or there's uh, one on Thursday called He Reads Truth, or Monday night Brad Alice is teaching a Bible study, and there are some other women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies that are coming up. Just get involved in a Bible study and study the Word of God. Generosity. Generosity changes the shape of our life. To intentionally engage in giving to God, back to God, for the sake of the ministry so that we can change lives for eternity. To be engaged in service, and witness. 
And just start. God calls us to intentionally engage, to lay down our idols, and to prioritize the things of God. To be a true disciple who says, I am all in. I am fully engaged for the sake of the kingdom of God. So over these first two weeks, we've said our two commitments so far this year is we're going to intentionally invite others. And we're going to intentionally engage in growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And see how God shapes us as the body of Christ. And see how God shapes you as God intentionally builds into your life and engages you with the gifts that he has for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.